0: The the trips that we had, uh, very briefly, just want to give you a little bit of an update. So many people have asked me questions, so I just want to quickly say something about it. Um, As I say, one was to Kenya for three weeks, and we spent time in Maasai villages. Uh, Maasai people are actually very difficult to, to gain access into their communities, because they've had so many bad experiences of Western people going in, in particular taking pictures and then selling them to um, magazines and papers and books and whatnot, getting lots and lots of money for themselves, but not giving anything to the Maasai. And so they kind of banned people from taking pictures. And I've been telling people the story of the pastor that we were working with who um, had a a visitor with him, and uh, he jumped out of the car at one point. The pastor pulled in to buy something from one of the stalls, and the visitor, the tourist, jumped out and started to take photographs of the Maasai at the other side of the road. Um, And when the pastor turned round, this guy was totally surrounded by Maasai warriors with their spears pointing inwards. And uh, called across to the pastor and said, Have you got anything you want to say to this guy before we kill him? (laughs) And uh, so he had to try and talk them down from that a little bit. And uh, and eventually the guy was uh, let go. But... I hope these guys that are coming here won't have that response to any of you if you have got a camera with you. Um, But uh, it gives you an example of how difficult it is to access some of these tribal groups. And uh, it was good to be working with Pastor Tom Opio, who's been uh, serving as a missionary pastor, a Kenyan himself, but serving as a missionary into the Maasai people for the last seven years or so. And uh, he was able to open the doors for us to get into these groups, into the villages. And uh, it was a, a really, really amazing experience. And uh, so God really moved amongst us as a team, but also helped us as we served there as well. And if you want to find out details of that, you'll find it on our website. But, um, then after leaving Kenya, I went to Ghana for a, a week and spent some time there. <clears throat> and that in itself was a real challenge. We were about 600 miles away from the capital, Accra, right away up in the north in a place called Bolgatanga um, on the border with Burkina Faso. And we worked there with a pastor called Peter Awani. Uh, he had been saved as a result of a radio ministry some years ago. And uh, sometimes we wonder what effect TV and radio and other broadcasts are having. This guy is a young man living in a tribal family, uh, animistic uh, um, beliefs. And uh, he heard the gospel on the radio and became a Christian as a result of that. And as uh, his life developed, he would, uh, the only teaching that he had uh, of any biblical teaching at all, because there was no church in the area at all, um, was from the radio broadcasts. And uh, he eventually became a Bible translator, and he translated large portions of the Bible into uh, the Frafra language, which is the tribe we were working amongst there. And uh, he still does that yet. But just recently he's been praying for all these years, 20-odd 20, 20 years he's been doing that work. And he's been praying that God would give him the facility to broadcast to um, other people uh, in his community. And just recently an American group um, gave him an FM radio station Uh, which broadcasts currently about 50 miles radius from Bolgatanga over into Burkina Faso, into Togo and uh, in the north part of of Ghana as well. And so he was just delighted, he was like a dog with two tails when we got there because it was the opening ceremony when we arrived for the radio station Word FM it's called and uh, they broadcast sermons and uh, teachings and music uh, on the radio station which uh, the people are absolutely delighted about because uh, they don't have TVs, many of them. They have radios, and they listen in, and then they phone in in after the broadcast, and and their questions are answered uh, from the studio um, after the broadcast is over. So it was good to be there, but the challenge for us is that um, the pastor said to us, look, there are so many people in our area, in this region that we live, and over on the border in Burkina Faso and various other countries that are close by in the north of Ghana there that have never heard the name of Jesus even once and so the the challenge of course is to to find a way of helping these churches in that area to reach the people in their own area and uh, so they've asked us if we uh, would uh, take a team back there again and uh, preach and uh, so that's a possibility so please continue to pray for us as we do that just one good example of how that can be effective in somebody's life is that we were out and two of us with the pastor, a guy from Dundee here who a friend of mine who came out Vince Goose who goes to another church in the area and he met me out there and he's, he's an ordinary Christian guy he's not a preacher by any stretch of the imagination and uh, so um, he of course was preaching and sharing the gospel and all sorts of stuff but we are out in the villages and um, we came to this little group of homes in the middle of maize and, and whatnot fields. There was all sorts of crops growing, way higher than me, and uh, these little houses, which were lower than the crops, so you couldn't see them initially, but eventually you'd find these little houses. And uh, we got to this group of little homes. And there's a woman there, a young woman with a baby on her back, and uh, we said, you know, we've come to share the word of God with you. And she just burst into tears right there and then. Oh, that was quick. <laughs> would you like to sign here? <laughs> I see that hand. And uh, but of course, she. We said, "Why are you crying?" She said, "Well," and she dragged her mother out of the house. She says, "I've been preaching to this woman, my mother, for years. Since I became a Christian, I've been preaching to her, and she's not going to get saved." And uh, she said, "So I asked God if He would send somebody else who could preach." her and so we did and she got saved and uh, accepted the Lord right there and then so uh, just examples like that are are how straightforward it can be uh, sharing God's word with people uh, in these parts of the world and uh, so if you are interested in that kind of thing at all then please let me know and and we can uh, talk about it. But the the word of God comes to us for a purpose. It comes in order that we can bring our lives into line with what God has for us. And and the scripture that we've been reading is a good example of that. A little bit of the background of of, uh, Matthew's gospel is that it's The key word in the whole book is the word fulfillment. It's it's really talking about the fulfillment of Jesus, uh, all of the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus are coming to pass during the process of this gospel and, of course, the other ones. And, of course, Matthew, I think, is the only one who talks a little bit about the church as well. The others don't so much talk about the church in the gospels. The, the, The word gospel, of course, means glad tidings or good news. And uh, the other three, as well as this gospel, have lots of information that we need to discover in order that we can live our lives for God. The, the scriptures here, and Matthew in particular, has contained within it the whole counsel of God regarding our salvation and the salvation promise for the whole earth. Um, and the, the gospels are a sort of culmination of that promise and it all begins to sort of pour out during the process of reading the Gospels and Matthew is a great example of that. Acts 20 verse 27, Paul tells us that he did not hold back on the preaching of the whole counsel of God and that's some of the problems that we face in the church in our modern day is that the whole counsel of God is not preached And the whole counsel of God is laid to one side. And we may get parts of it, um, but if there's any part remains, it often is quite weakly put down. And we need to preach God's word in its entirety in order that people might be able to live godly lives before the Lord. Paul also tells us in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God. And so it's not only the whole counsel of God, but it's the power of God. And so when we preach the gospel, something takes place. God's power is released. It's the power of God unto salvation to all those who believe. And so that connection between the word being preached and the, the person believing God's word to them, then something revolutionary takes place. Lives are changed. And of course we can believe what God has to say because of Jesus, the one who is unchanging Uh, Who brings his word to us? Matthew Henry puts it like this um, as he describes the the process of of salvation. Unless we consent to him, that's Jesus, as our Lord, then we cannot expect to benefit from him as Saviour. In other words, we need to make Jesus Lord of our lives as an order that he can become our saviour. And many, there's a debate about what comes first. Is Jesus saviour before his Lord, or is he lord before his saviour? Well, I'm not going to go into that debate, but what I'm going to say is he's both. (laughs) Obviously, in equal measure, he is both lord and saviour of our lives. But he has to be lord in order that we can benefit from the saviour that he is. Matthew himself was uh, 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 a Jew, obviously, but also a publican uh, before he was called by Jesus. And so he he was aware of the circumstances of people's lives and saw some of the worst excesses uh, of, of the community of his day as he lived his life, his normal daily life as a publican. And you can kind of read the caution that he uses while he's writing these words in chapter seven in particular and other parts of the the, the gospel. He uses some sort of caution as he's writing, aware of his own situation, aware of his own uh, humanity, if you like, but also very much aware of the deity of Christ as he writes. And so, as we come to look at this chapter, um, there's a, a, a question of two destinations that are depicted uh, during the the process of the the few words that we've read. The challenge to us, perhaps as Christians, is not uh, what other religions are doing. We hear a lot about that in the press, we hear a lot about it in the debate uh, within Christian circles as well. But other religions, Islam and Buddhism and so on, are not necessarily our biggest problem right now. Our biggest problem, of course, is living our lives as God intends us to live them. Uh, somebody once said, I don't understand the Bible. Um, and the response to that is, well, if we can do the things we do understand, then we probably won't have time to deal with all the stuff that we don't understand. <laughs> there are lots of, lots of stuff in the Bible that we do understand. And uh, as Christians, we need to live the, our lives as the Bible teaches us and as Jesus teaches us from his word. And so we need to live it not as a sort of um, as, a, as a Buddhist might looking for nirvana um, a sort of perpetual peace or liberation or whatever. Uh, it sounds pretty good but in actual fact uh, there's a deception there because it's human-made, it's man-made in its, uh, its structure. We as as Christians have been presented with a start point and a destination, a finish point. And both are in the same place, if you like, in some ways. Our start point is Jesus as Lord and Saviour of our lives. That's where we begin. We come in our broken state and God heals us, restores us and saves us through Christ's death on the cross, through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the Saviour and the Redeemer, the one who has purchased us for God. Um, And the book of Revelation clearly talks about purchasing men for God from every tribe and nation and people under the sun. And so we are part of that. Um, You know, sometimes in our Western world we don't realize, but we are the ends of the earth. (laughs) We are it. Um, The gospel has reached us. But there are some parts of the world the gospel hasn't reached. And we need to take that into consideration. So he is the redeemer of our lost souls. And he is also the conclusion point, the end point of our life, to be with Christ in glory in heaven. So God takes us through this scripture. He takes us through the issues of our lives. He takes us through the purpose that is planned for us. And very often we find ourselves struggling with situations. And the the, the key to, to understanding the difference between the walk with God that we have and other things is that God takes us through the problems that we face. He takes us through them and he doesn't take us out of them. Sometimes we, we want to have some sort of anesthetic, if you like, to get us through the issues and the problems that we face. But, uh, and there are those religions and philosophies of our day um, that might want to give us that. Um, but. Uh, we need to understand that God takes us through the situation. So he he gives us a start point and he gives us a finish point in Christ where he takes us through our lives, takes us through the difficulties, takes us through the situations that we face um, every day on a daily basis. Matthew chapter 7, um, starting off in in verse 1 through to about verse 6, it talks about judging. In fact, it says, do not judge or you too will be judged. And it's a key situation that, that, brings, that brings up to us here that we are commanded not to judge others. Yes, we can judge ourselves. And that's an important thing for us to do, that we judge our own actions. We try to judge our own motives. None of us have pure motives. Um, in fact, it's... Uh, uh, You know, all sorts of issues come around us, but our motives can be impure as we respond to them. Even as we come before God, our motives can be impure. So we're not pure. So to judge someone else in that condition is a difficult thing for us to do, problematic thing for us to do. So we're called here not to judge somebody else. That's God's job. That's his responsibility. He has that job to do. What he does say is, though, If we do try to judge somebody else then we're going to be in problems. There is a place for judgment but there is a problem that comes along and it tells us here in verse 3 that we have a problem of seeing. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? expressing the fact that even although it's just a speck that's that's uh, in somebody else's eye we want to try and get rid of it because it kind of helps us to avoid uh, looking at and taking cognizance of the plank or the beam as the Old Testament the, the authorised version calls it, the beam in our own eye it can be so much in the way and so judgment Uh, Is a problematic thing It's a tough thing for us to get right In this chapter Jesus tells us not to to consider the speck in the other person's eye And and somehow identifies here degrees of sin If someone has a speck and someone has a plank or a beam It would suggest that one person's sin is smaller than the other So there's a suggestion there that there is a a degree of sin. The problem being is that when we apply that, we can sometimes say, well, if his sin is smaller than mine or my sin is smaller than his, then somehow or another we're better. The problem is that there is maybe um, degrees of sin, but there's no insignificant sin. And that's the key issue, that our sin is not insignificant that even the smallest of our sin is enough to consign us to a lost eternity, which is a a frightening thought uh, to consider. But we also have to remember that there's no such thing as an insignificant God that we sin against. And so our sin is significant no matter if it's a speck or if it's a beam or a plank, that we need to take note of it Sometimes in other parts of scripture, I like think it's Matthew 23, where Jesus describes the, the Pharisees and others as straining at a gnat, but swallowing a camel. <laughs> and you can understand that, this tiny little thing. And they worry so much about the little bits of, of the law, and yet, at the other side, they're swallowing huge problems, as if they didn't exist. And uh, he describes these things to us to say, look, you need to understand that sin is significant, no matter how small it is. And he says there, you're blind, you blind guides, you strain at a gnat, but swallow a camel. Maybe they were blind because they had planks in their own eyes, who knows. But we tend to justify our own sins and exaggerate the sins of others. I don't know if you've ever done that. I tend to uh, do that kind of thing. I'll put my hands up to it. I tend to justify the kind of things that I might do wrong and say, well, it's not so bad. I've been a Christian for a very long time. And I find a, a way of trying to justify and make my sin look less significant. But we see other people's sin and we immediately exaggerate that because if we can exaggerate their sin, then our sin looks smaller. And so we're trying to pick this speck out of somebody's eyes. and say, you've got a very big speck in your eye. Well, what about that plank in your eye? It's a very small plank I've got in my eye. And we tend to try and balance out or um, eradicate um, our sin in other words, uh, before God. But God sees the specks and the planks in their proper perspective. He sees sin as it is. And you'll find as you read through this chapter, as I've read through it, and as you read through it again, you'll find that there are plain words spoken. And God speaks plainly about sin. Um, Very often we find ourselves, um, as I say, justifying and and, and trying to put it in a place where it's not as bad as it might, uh, trying to make it look as not as bad as it is. Uh, But God speaks plainly about sin and uh, does not try to wash it out of the way uh, so that we can feel better. This scripture is saying that uh, in the first part of chapter 7, talking about the plank, it says, You hypocrite, in verse 3, first take the plank out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. There's something about that. That if we remove that plank, there's a repentance there that's required. God says, you're a hypocrite if you think that you can do it any other way. That's plain talking. He's not mincing his words. He's plain talking to the people first take the plank out. So there's a place where we can have the plank removed. It's not there forever and eternity. The plank can be taken out of our eye. And so it says you take it out yourself. First take the plank out of your own eye. So it's something we can do. It's to do with repentance. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so he's saying, well, if you do deal with the situation and the issues regarding your own life, then there is a place for you to go and help and serve others, but not to judge. And that's the whole point, is to help. To remove the speck from your brother's eye. There's a service in that. That's a good thing. Then it goes on to talk about something else. Um, or, or it appears to say something else. In verse 6, Do not give dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your perils to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet, and then turn and tear you to pieces. And I used to always get, sort of, well, what's this all about? Why uh, does that piece come after that part on, on, on the plank and the, and the speck of sawdust and so on? But, really what it's talking about is the whole business of rebuke. It's talking about rebuke and, and dealing with sin and taking a rebu- receiving the rebuke. And it's, it, we saw this person taking the plank out of their own eye and then helping somebody else. But then it challenges us not to give dogs what is sacred and not to throw perils to pigs. And uh, I saw an interesting um, picture, a sign Uh, I think it was in Uganda or somewhere like that and it said uh, it was in a place where you could go and look at crocodiles. You could go and sort of peer over this thing and and see the crocodiles somewhere below. And it had a sign and I've put it up on our website for people to see it because I was so amazed by it. It said uh, those who throw stones at the crocodiles will be asked to retrieve them. (laughs) And uh, that's kind of what this picture is about here. It's saying if you throw something, a pearl of wisdom, of reproof uh, at swine as as they're called, a a derogatory term or dogs. Uh, Very often the Jews called every other race under the sun the dogs because the Gentiles were untouchable and unclean. Um, And so it was a, a term, a derogatory term. But if you throw a stone at a dog lying in the sun, you're liable to get bitten. It's liable to turn on you and bite you for throwing a stone at it. And if you use perils of wisdom and rebuke in the wrong way, then it's gonna have the the, uh, the wrong effect. But also, if you rebuke someone who is unwilling to take that rebuke, then you may well be bitten as well. if you challenge somebody because Something I remember years and years and years ago in the street where we live. Um, I was in the house, Mary and I were in the house, and our kids were just small. And we had this screaming coming from the street, <laughs> and uh, I ran out to the street, wondering what on earth. It sounded like somebody was being murdered. It was so dreadful. And um, I saw this man dragging a woman up the street by the hair, shouting at her, and she was screaming. And I said, "Hey, what are you doing?" And he let her go, and the two of them got up and turned on me. (laughs) What has it got to do with you, she said. Um, Okay. (laughs) That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. People who will not receive a rebuke are are referred to here as dogs or swine. They're unable to receive a challenge. And so the, the key issue is that we need to be able to receive a challenge. Godly counsel is a holy thing. When somebody comes and gives you godly counsel, it's not for you to snap their nose off. It's for you to receive it and hear what God is saying to you as a result of that. And that's a very difficult thing for us to do. In our Western culture, where we're very individual and we sort of try to find ourselves and we we live for ourselves all the time, it's very difficult for us to do. We don't like to be reproved corrected and we don't want to receive uh, that kind of challenge into our lives because who do you think you are you know who do you think you are so we must be careful of those uh, that we challenge um, and there's a discernment required in all of that as well but also we need to be careful the other way because there will be people who come through that door uh, from time to time maybe more busily in the future than we can imagine right now. But we may well condemn them somehow as dogs or, or swine because they don't seem to be able to take reproof. But in actual fact it's because of the lifestyle that they've had or the problems and the issues that they've had to face that they've never had any kind of control. They're feral people, if you like, uh, who are out there. And God is going to reach into some of their hearts and restore them and heal them. And bring them back they're going to be sinners that are seeking God and uh, so we need to be careful and not to banish people um, because we think uh, that they may be unable to take the proof you know um, we need to be aware um, I forget it's in Habakkuk that says if the if the stall is empty then the um, trough is clean you know there's no there's no animals in the shed then there ain't no smell but when the problems start to come through the door, then we're going to have issues that we need to face and, and uh, deal with. And the church, we always like it to be a nice place. But it may not be a nice place in the future. It may be a tough place, to, and you think, coming on a Sunday morning, and you think, <laughs> who are we going to face, what are we going to face this week? What are the problems that are going to turn up this week? But... Uh, There may be those who come in that situation. So we need discernment to know are those people unable to be challenged and and reproved for their lifestyle, or have they to be given time to work through some of the issues that they face? Then we move on to um, the section that many of us as Christians, if you've been a Christian for any period of time at all, you may well have read this scripture ask, seek, and knock. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks the door will be opened. And uh, that's a very positive response that God gives to us in these few words. But you'll notice it's present tense. That this is not some sort of promise from away, away. It's a way, way, way. It's a current promise that God gives us, that if we ask, and uh, years ago we used to sing a song, ask and keep on asking and it will be given to you. That's what that word means, the ask part of it. It's a continual, perpetual asking. Um, It's the seeking, it's continually seeking, continually knocking, persistently knocking at the door and asking God. And so um, we need to be prepared for that. But there are times when God answers us by saying no (laughs) and there are times when God answers us by saying not yet but there are times when God answers us by saying yes Um, it's better to have a denial from God, a God who loves us in that kind of situation than uh, grants in anger, God grants us something but is angry towards us as a result and if you look back in the the book of um, 1 Samuel you'll find that The people of God asked for a king, and God said, "Well, I don't. I want to be the king. I don't want to give you a king, but we want a king just like every other country uh, has got a king, every other land." And God said, "Okay, you can have a king." But you can imagine the the reflection that that will bring, the anger of God that can come as a result. So we need to ask, but we need to be aware that God has the right to give us any answer He likes. And uh, can tell us to wait. Or he can tell us, I'm sorry, but that's not good for you right now. I'm not going to give that to you. Just as we might with a child. And then he goes on to talk about giving bread. Uh, giving a stone to a child who asks for bread. And he's, he's challenging the people. He's saying, look, you know, you, you guys, although you are wicked, you still know how to give good gifts to your children. And it's like it's an inbuilt thing in um, our own um, makeup, as parents, if you're a parent, you want to give something good to your children. It's something weird about that. What is going on here? You don't sort of um, want to destroy them. You don't want to give them something that's going to affect them badly, like a, a snake instead of, of of an egg, or a scorpion instead of an egg. You wouldn't do that to your children. And God is saying, "Look, you guys, even though you're evil." You understand that simple principle. So understand God towards you. That he wants to give good things to you. Know how to, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Then there's another strange verse that's linked in here. So in everything you do to others. So, so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And so that whole thread is coming through, that there is something about dealing with other people's situations, about judgment, about dealing with the speck in somebody's eye, about giving gifts to your children. It's all saying, look, you know, there's a a balance to be found. There is something that God is, is saying to us here, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. And if you would like it, then it's highly likely they would like it. And I'm not talking about tuna sandwiches when I say that. And so, it's so important that we take hold of these principles. Now, time is moving on, so I'm going to quickly rush through the other parts of this uh, chapter, which are important. We noted right at the start that there were two destinations, two destinies uh, identified in this chapter. And it talks right at the beginning of verse 13. enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And so we need God's direction. We need God to show us. Um, so our, our Western culture has so much rejected God and has discovered the wide road. Because that's all there is. There's billboards everywhere saying, this way, for a great life, come this way. We'll sell you what you need to, be, to, to succeed in life and to have a wonderful life. And these big billboards with neon lights are pointing to the wide gate and the wide road. But God says there is another road. It's a narrow gate. It's a narrow road. Uh, and it's easier To find the wide road, it's difficult to find this narrow road. It's difficult to negotiate. But this road, you must be totally mad if you want to go on it. (laughs) Because this road requires that we give away our lives. This road requires that we become living sacrifices uh, for God. This road requires the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. We must be totally mad if we go that road. But he said there are few who find it, few who understand that this road is about living for God and achieving Christ at the end. It's that, that achieving, that end point that he's called us to. So there are two gates, there are two roads. By definition there has to be two destinations or two destinies. There's a scripture in the Old Testament, I'm trying to remember where it is, but it talks about piercing of the ear of the servant. And we used to sing a song years ago, a chorus that said, pierce my ear, O Lord my God. Um, and it talked about never being a free man again. And the, the, the whole purpose of it was uh, living for God and serving God with the rest of your life, with the whole of your life. And uh, very often it's a challenge that God calls us to with regard to the road, and the broad road We have all sorts of places that we can stop, we can look, we can choose. Well, I'll have a bit of this and I'll have a bit of that. But with God's road, the narrow road that he's called us to take, there's very little room for uh, deviation. It's a straight road. It's a narrow road. And he's called us to walk it uh, with him. And it's tough. It calls for us to be determined to serve and to live for God. There's a lot more I could say on these two, but I'll I'll move on because of time. But it says in verse 15 that there are two animals that we find here as well. Two animals. Um, And it says, Watch out for false prophets, in verse 15. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. And it goes on to talk about fruit. But there you have a situation where, again, discernment is required as we go in God's way. We need to be discerning about what is going on round about us. Watch out for false prophets. In actual fact, what they're talking about there are false teachers. There are prophets who proclaim the future. But there are prophets or teachers of, of the word of God who tell us, clearly what our duty is before God. So we're not talking about people declaring the future necessarily. We're talking about people who teach us the way to live our lives before God. That's what this is talking about here. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Now, I was brought up among sheep as a young man. I was My father was a shepherd and so um, every day I was tripping over sheep everywhere I went. Um, and so it wasn't difficult for me to identify a sheep. But what it's saying is here that there is a deception that will come upon God's people even that makes it difficult for us to identify these problem cases. Now, you know, we see all sort of cartoon figures appearing, perhaps when we see, uh, think about this, um, and this situation with uh, sheep with wool, uh, wolves with sheep's clothing on, should I say. But, this is a situation that is is serious as far as the church is concerned. We must be very, very careful. Because this is not talking about sheep and goats. It's talking about sheep and wolves. Wolves that look like sheep. That's a whole different ballgame. Sheep and goats, I've, I've just, as I say, been in Kenya. One of the jobs that we had to do with the Maasai people was to catch their sheep and their goats and give them injections and to spray their cattle for ticks and all that sort of stuff so we had all these people <laughs> and again I just went straight back to my childhood I was back there again catching sheep in this sort of uh, pen thing and, uh, and there's a guy there who, who is a, a lawyer in Edinburgh who's part of the team and uh, he said what's the difference between a sheep and a goat which made me smile because it's obvious to me he said well they all look the same to me I said, well, it's easy to identify. Goat's tails point up the way, sheep's tails point down the way. It's dead easy. Right? That's the one way to begin. Because all the tails are pointing towards us, so that was an easy part to identify. So I said, go and get me a sheep. So He goes, sticks his hand in amongst all these legs and pulls one, and it's a goat on the other end. <laughs> oh, stick it back again. Three times out of three, he got a goat instead of a sheep. Because he was so scared um, about touching these jolly things that he kind of turned away and did that in the hope that he would catch the right one. But, um, but so identifying the difference between sheep and goats is not a problem. Um, and sometimes um, we can see uh, goats in the church, if you like, and pardon me for using that phrase, but people who, who just don't uh, fit with the flock, if you like, they're not of the same breed. They're not of the same situation. And they, they are problems. Um, but these ones, the wolves in sheep's clothing, are ferocious killers. These are not just problem cases. They're not just goats like hypocrites, for example, um, could be described. The false teachers are wolves. These are the ones who will destroy the sheep. They will destroy the sheep. And that's a key issue. That's a major problem. Matthew chapter 24, I want you to read with me very quickly in Matthew 24 because there is a, a, an interesting um, scripture there. And it talks about the last times. chapter 24 uh, verse 3 As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives the disciples came to him privately tell us they said when will this happen and what will the sign of the coming of the end of the age Jesus answered watch out that no one deceives you even Jesus was concerned with his disciples those that were with him every day Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains." Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by the nations because of me. At that time many will turn from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness. The love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and the end will come. And, uh, and so it goes on there. Then in verse 24, For false Christs and prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles and deceive even the elect if that were possible. And so the whole deception issue is a major issue as far as the church is concerned. We need to be aware that deception is out there wanting to get in. And so not everybody who walks through the door who looks like a bona fide sheep (laughs) is actually a sheep. And uh, that, again, uh, requires us to have discernment. Not judgment, but discernment. That God requires us to discern the difference. One is harmless and docile, the other a ferocious killer. And so be careful about the difference. Then it goes on in verse 16 to talk about two fruits, two trees and two fruits, one good and one bad. It's a fairly obvious statement. You don't pick grapes from thorn bushes. Yeah, well I kind of knew that. I don't know if you were aware of that one. I knew that you don't get grapes from thorn bushes. I haven't picked many grapes in my life but I suspect there won't be many thorn bushes uh, where you've picked grapes. So that, why tell us that? I mean, the people that Jesus was around knew that. Um, why tell us that? Because of the deception. That's the issue. It's because of the deception. There were people in the Garden of Eden, if you remember, and they were told, don't eat of that tree. <laughs> it's fairly obvious. That tree there, yep, the one with the flashing light on it, don't touch it, okay, just keep away. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the one that says it at the bottom. Don't touch it. Okay. So what do they do? Who comes along? The deceiver comes along. The same deceiver as we're talking about here. The one who will be the wolf in sheep's clothing. That very same one will come. And he came to Adam and to Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's described there in the book of Genesis. And how the deceiver said to them, Look, you, know, you can. You can do it. And they listened, and they heard, and they did, and they went and ate um, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as such, destroyed humankind, um, and the need for salvation is there as a result of that. And so, we can't say, well, we know it all, we understand, we've got it sorted, we, we know that if you do this, then it's going to be a problem. But we, we do it anyway, because we are easily deceived, we easily become deceived. And so be prepared for that deception to come. Some of us will hear phrases like, oh, well, there's some good in it, isn't there? Or they've got some good in them. You know, the Bible says that there's no one who is good, no one who is righteous. No, not one. And so we must be aware that we must judge everything or or assess everything as a result of knowing Christ. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, the devil is a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. And so he's not some mamby-pamby wee thing that we see on cartoons. He's a roaring lion. He wants to devour God's people. He wants to devour the church and destroy God's people. 1 John 4, 1 says that we need to test the spirit to see if it be of God. So there must be a way of doing that. And so we need to apply the scripture to test the spirit to see if it be of God. In other words, uh, that we need to assess appropriately um, in the church. Then it goes on in verse 24 to talk about two builders, one wise and one foolish. Wisdom is building where God says we should build. That's the key issue that comes out of there. Wisdom is not saying, well, I've got a better idea. (laughs) why don't we build, there's a nice piece of sand over here why don't we build over there Uh Uh-uh. the Bible says that we need to build on Christ, he is the rock he is the rock, so he said to Peter you are a rock but upon this rock I will build my church and the rock of the revelation of Christ that's what he was talking about so we need to do what God has told us to do we need to go and make disciples we need to be aware of his call upon our lives then in verse 24 it talks about two foundations, one solid and one weak foundations are a key issue with regard to our lives in God it's a key issue to anything that we build that uh, if you build something with shaky foundations it's going to come down it's going to collapse one day and you'll find that in some of the earthquake regions of the world that there are those who have skimped a little bit on the foundation material. And these beautiful buildings that are built above that, when the earthquake comes, they all come down, crashing down, it's dust. I don't know if you saw uh, some of the pictures of earthquakes recently on TV, but there's not, not great lumps of building that fall. This thing just ends up in dust um, as it comes down. And so we need to have a firm and a strong foundation. Don't build on someone else's foundation also in Romans 15 verse 20. It's always been my ambition, Paul says, to preach the gospel while Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. And so we need to be aware that building on someone else's foundation can be problematic as well, because we don't know what they've done to it. We don't know if it's been properly put in place. And so it's not a good idea to build on someone else's foundation. So Our choices, we have many choices to make. We saw right throughout there are two uh, choices to be made. We need to make a choice with regard to God's word. Uh, Do we hear it and believe it or do we reject it? Is there a start point and a destination point that we have chosen? In Alaska, they have a road sign, apparently, which says, Choose your rut carefully. You'll be in it for the next 200 miles. (laughs) Some of the old roads there, once you get in a rut, you can't get out of it. So you've got to choose it very carefully. You might end up in the wrong place. So you're going to be in this place for 200 miles. Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 says this. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life, so that you and your children may live. Now that seems again so straightforward. Choose life so that you and your children may live. Uh, that doesn't take a lot of brains to work that out. But so often, we make the wrong choices. And so it has to be made abundantly clear to us. Choose life. Joshua twenty-four fifteen. Choose today whom you will serve. Then he goes on to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's a choice to be made. If you choose life, you will live. We sang it earlier on, uh, death is dead or something. I forget the the actual line that was in one of the songs that we sung. Um, But death is dead. There is no purpose in following after that way of life. Choose life. And that's a straightforward choice. And Jesus, we know from scripture, is the way, the truth and the life. Life. So our, our choices for today are crucial for the future. We heard that this morning from Brian, who has rejoiced in the name key for some centuries now uh, as a result of a choice that somebody made way back. So choices, choices that we make today are key for our future, for our children, for our grandchildren. are key. That's a good one. I, was not, I didn't even get that one myself. Well done. <clears throat> so we need to make these choices now, today they're important for us to make very often we're forced into the question though have I done enough have I done enough to fulfill God's call have I done enough to achieve what God wants me to achieve have I been there You know, sometimes people ask what can I get away with and still be saved <laughs> what a stupid question to ask what can I get away with and still be saved? You know, is it once saved, always saved? Or can I lose my salvation? That's the wrong question. How saved can I become is probably a better question. You know, don't walk near the edge. Walk in here somewhere where it's safe. You know, move across. Have I done enough? No, I haven't done enough. But Jesus has done enough. We read it again. We sang it earlier on. It's, it's finished. He cried out. It is finished. He's done it. He's completed the work that he came to do. There's a song. I just want the hymn that, as as a child, I remember from school. We didn't sing it in the church that I went to, but we did sing it at school. And we must have had some good Christian teachers. I don't remember teachers all that much. Um, I was a wee bit dozy at school, unfortunately, so I didn't really remember very much about school at all. But I did remember this, and we sang this hymn, and you'll know it very well. There is a green hill far away outside the city wall, where our dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. And this is the the verse I remember from school as a child a long, long time ago. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. Now as a, a wee rascal of a boy, With a twin brother who was doubly a rascal. Uh, Together you can imagine what we got up to. But these words, he died to make us good, were a a real challenge. And, And I remember them just piercing my own heart as a child. He died to make us good. That we might go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Oh dearly, dearly has he loved and we must love him too and trust in his redeeming blood and try his works to do. That's the call of God upon us to make a choice to choose Christ, to choose life, to choose his way, to choose not to judge, to choose to give good gifts, to choose to live our lives for him. That's what I would present to you from the chapter that we've read. I hope that somehow you'll get more from it as you read it again. But God wants us to make the right choices. He's made it clear what the choices are to choose the right thing and the right way. So let's thank God for the word that he's given to us. Written out clearly for us to understand and to take on board. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you Father for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word which can transform our lives if we live for you uh, according to your word. Thank you Lord that it pierces our soul. Thank you Lord that it leaves none of us um, lost but gives us a way and a direction and a destiny. Thank you Lord that we can make decisions today that will affect the future for ourselves and for our children, our children's children. Thank you Lord that you've called us to serve you and live for you. Let us be, as was quoted from the scripture, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen.